Hello, and welcome to the Bar of Ireland's Justice Week podcast series. Justice Week is an annual initiative of the League of Professions across four jurisdictions, and its purpose is to increase support, understanding, and awareness of the rule of law and justice. This year, Justice Week Ireland is focusing on law and technology. And in this episode, Michael O'Doherty, barrister and member of the Bar of Ireland, is joined by two spokespeople from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, Holger Cronin and Dr. Chris Trishak. Hello everyone, my name is Michael O'Doherty. I am a practicing barrister and I am the host of uh, this podcast, which will have as its main general topics, data protection and artificial intelligence and recent developments um, in the law as regards both of these areas. I'm joined today by two people from the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. I've got Olga Cronin, who is the policy officer in the area of technology and human rights at ICCL. And I'm also joined by Dr. Chris Shrishak, who is a technology fellow at the ICCCL. And Chris is joining us by the miracle of technology all the way from Germany. So, Olga and Chris, um, thank you very much for joining us today. If I could start with you, Olga, um, uh, on the uh, subject of data protection. And there was uh, an important decision in the last couple of weeks of the Belgian Data Protection Authority in relation to these famous cookie pop-up banners that we see every time we access a website. I understand this decision could have very far-reaching effects in terms of how personal data is used by advertisers online um, and that the actual issue uh, that was considered by the Belgian Data Protection Authority uh, was provoked originally by some work uh, that was performed by your colleague, Dr. Johnny Ryan at the ICCL. So can you talk us through that decision and, and tell us what it means? Thanks, Michael. And thanks for having myself and Chris here today. So yeah, this decision on February 2nd was a, a landmark decision. And as you said, um, it does follow the work five years of work by um, our colleague Johnny Ryan. So Johnny first made his complaint to the Belgian Data Protection Commission in September 2018. And since then, others made complaints in other, to other jurisdictions. So, that, so this is kind of a cumulative effect of that. But privacy advocates like Johnny have been arguing for years that these pop-up consent boxes have just been giving a kind of pretense or facade of legality to what is ultimately targeted uh, advertising based on surveilling or tracking people's behavior online. So what it means is that hopefully this will mark the beginning of the end, or at least the beginning of moves to free almost maybe 500 million people across Europe from these annoying, misleading consent requests, but also that it will have a real, it will make a real concrete start or beginning towards tangible moves to protect people from illicit profit-making surveillance by the ad tech industry. But if we were to go back to the decision, Johnny made a complaint about what, a complaint against what is called the Interactive Advertising Bureau Europe, otherwise known as IAB Europe. IAB Europe is the trade body for the online advertising industry in Europe, and it represents about 5,000 companies. It's also the body that designs these so-called consent pop-up notices that we all know and loathe. And this system of pop-up notices is known as IAB Europe's transparency and consent framework. So we'll just call the pop-up consent notices for the rest because it's just easier. But so these were created by IAB Europe, by the industry after the GDPR was rolled out. The system was purported to give people control over how their data was being used by the online industry. Only it wasn't. And so this was the complaint from Johnny and others. And basically the, the Belgian GPA decision has vindicated those calls. But just to take a sidestep for a second. So we've just talked about uh, this pop-up notice. But just to talk about the online advertising industry for a second. So it's primarily automatic, supersonic speed, very much behind the scenes. 
um, unlike let's say traditional advertising that we would all know. So there are, diff there are different methods, but one of them is this method called real-time bidding. And it involves the auctioning of billions of advertisements every day. So basically you or I will go on an app on a, on a website. And first, when you click on something for a split of seconds, you would see a blank box where an ad will eventually appear. But before that ad appears, a load of personal data about you, your preferences, your web browsing, they're kind of sloshed around and shopped around basically in an auction and sold to the highest bidder. And then that highest bidder's ad will appear on your phone or your, or your laptop next to the news article you clicked on or whichever, but that ad will be specifically tailored to your profile. So it's been Johnny's position, other people's, other privacy and data protection advocates' position that RTB basically jeopardizes the right to privacy, the right to, to protection of personal data, and even the right to maybe freedom of thought. But going back to the pop-up notices, during the Belgian DPA's consideration of this complaint about those pop-up consent notices, it was IAB Europe's position that the pop-up consent notices provided accountability and transparency to a specific real-time bidding system, that system I just talked about. So to make sure that, to ensure that it was GDPR compliant. And it was also IAB's um, Europe's position that these pop-ups informed people of what they were doing with their data and also it got their valid consent. But the argument of Johnny and the argument of others was that they didn't do that and it wasn't GDPR compliant. And ultimately, fast forward then to February 2nd and the Belgian authority, along with 27 other authorities, found in their favour. And they found that it was in violation of GDPR. I think I, when I read the judgment, I think I saw there was about 14 articles that were um, infringed upon. And it also found that IAB Europe was aware of the risks linked to non-compliance and was negligent. It found that the system failed to ensure personal data was kept secure and confidential. It found that it failed to properly request consent. It failed to provide transparency. It failed to have measures to ensure that it was being that the data processing was being performed in accordance with GDPR. A load of things like it didn't have a data protection impact assessment and Rather bizarrely, it didn't even appoint a data protection officer. So all of these things were found and it was a particularly strong decision. And as you said, it does have far reaching consequences. If I could just ask uh, Orla, just in relation to why it's far reaching, a lot of people might say, well, this is just the Belgian Data Protection Authority. So how does it impact us? My understanding is that the, the IAB, which is the subject of this complaint, um, that they are headquartered in Brussels, is that right? And therefore the Belgian DPA is the lead authority. Therefore this has pan-EU effect, this decision. Is that correct? Absolutely. It has pan-European effect. So immediately all that data that's been collected has to be deleted. The Data Protection Commission basically said to IAB Europe, you need to sort out your house, you need to come up with a plan in the next two months, and then you need to implement that plan within six months. And also they find it 250 grand. So we don't know yet whether IAB Europe will appeal. They have 30 days from the February 2nd to, to put that notice in. The judgment also talked about RTB, but real-time bidding and how that's posing a great risk to the fundamental rights and freedoms of data subjects, data subjects as in people. So um, it has a far-reaching effect because it's a severe blow to the ad tech industry online. Is, is the nub of the matter the fact that obviously people consent to the use of these cookies in order to get access to the website? Is the nub of the matter the fact that we don't know what we are consenting to? Or is it the fact that we do know what we're consenting to, but the manner in which this data is being used, we are not consenting to that? It's probably a bit of both. We're pressing consent, but we still don't know what's going on. There's still a level of opacity behind it. It's not being made clear and transparent to people what has been done with their data. The data has been shared with third parties. It's been shared with people we don't know. This is why we're getting these personalized, whatever way you want to call them, ads. I mean, there is a push for kind of more contextual advertising. Johnny has been 
beating this drum for years, a lot of the time he would say, look, take out that personal data, take out that personal data from that real-time bidding system. And, you know, a lot of these problems may not be there. It is a decision that affects, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And it's also a big dent to the tracking industry. If I, if I can just kind of move on to um, something else related to data protection, um, which is the upcoming um, online safety and media regulation bill, which is really the first piece of legislation that is designed to regulate the giant social media platforms, most of whom have their EU headquarters in Dublin. There is talk about increased regulation of the platforms via this bill. Do you have concerns about that regulation, particularly as it would impact on freedom of expression um, online, which is obviously such a fundamental aspect of internet use. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. So straight up, yeah, we short answer would be, yeah, we do have concerns about, you know, this increased regulation and how that will curtail freedom of expression. Um, because this is effectively what we've seen around the world. So research has shown that the NetsDG, the Online Safety Bill in Germany, has been effectively copied and pasted, copied and pasted, sorry, by less democratic jurisdictions um, across the world with worrying consequences for the right to freedom of expression. Um, but maybe, I suppose, just to go back to the OSMR. So it should, it's, it's probably worth just explaining what the OSMR is attempting to do because it's, it's trying to do several things. So first of all, it's transposing the EU's audiovisual and media services directive, which basically governs traditional TV broadcasts and on-demand services into Irish law, which is essentially setting down a minimum kind of set of rules in, in respect of advertising and the protection of minors. So that's one thing. It's dissolving the British, the sorry, the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, and then it's establishing a media commission which will regulate the audiovisual media services, sound media services, and designated online services. The online safety element of the bill mainly deals with, deals with what are these so-called designated online um, services and how they'll be regulated. And basically the bill will be regulating online speech in a manner like using codes in a manner that we're more familiar with when it comes to TV and like, like licensed TV and radio stations earned. So this bill will be regulating things like social media giants, but it's also going way beyond that. A designated uh, designated online service would be designed, sorry, would be designated as such by the Media Commission. That'll be in their gift. They could designate it an individual service or a category of services. They are able to choose from a massive range of services. So these services, uh, which by the way, there's one common thread between all those services, and that's just essentially human interaction, like user-generated content, so comments or posts or videos or whatever. So that pool of services includes social media services, but also public boards and forums, online gaming, e-commerce um, services, press publications, online... So if you... Uh, sorry, Olga. So if you uh, operate a website and you allow people to post reviews of your services on that website, could you technically come under the auspices of the Act itself? Yeah, I mean, that's what it says. That's exactly what it's saying. It's important to talk about that because it's not, this is not just social media giants. This is much, much bigger than that. Um, and then, so basically how it'll work is that the commission will, will create a set of codes and they will designate a service as a designated online service. That service will have to live by those codes. There'll be a super complaints mechanism whereby nominated bodies will be able to go to the media commission and say, um, we've got concerns about this particular content uh, or this non-compliance or otherwise with with certain codes. The Commission will be able to issue guidance notices. It'll be able to audit user complaint mechanisms. It will direct a service to take a specific action, which could be to remove or restore a piece of content or disable or limit access to the content. Ultimately, it'll be able to seek sanctions, apply a fine of up to 20 million, obviously there for the social media giants, but it'll also be able to go to court um, and compel a service to 
take steps that the Commission wants it to take, or it can go to the court, High Court to compel an internet and seek the, at the High Court to compel an internet service provider to block access to the service in the state. And the kernel of this is how they're defining harmful content. And how they're defining harmful content is kind of in two ways. The first one is offence-specific content. So that's content that's, content that's already subject to criminal law. So for example, the most recent Harmful Communications and Related Offences, I think, Act, or the Harmful Communications Act there from 2020, which criminalizes like a, what's called a, a grossly offensive communication to or by another person without that actually having been defined in the bill, but I'm just going to go off and I won't go off on that tangent, but that's, so that's, that's offense specific content. That's already, that's going to be deemed harmful content. But the second main stream is basically content that, online content by which a person bullies or humiliates another person, uh, content that whereby a person promotes or encourages behavior that characterizes a feeding or eating disorder, content there whereby a person promotes or encourages self-harm or suicide, and content that by which a person makes available knowledge of methods of self-harm or suicide. So first of all, just to say like content that might humiliate someone is extremely low threshold in our view, and also very, very difficult to pinpoint what's to, like, like what might be humiliating to me may not be what's humiliating to you, Michael. From the heads of the bill to the drawing of the draft bill, the general scheme of the bill, sorry, to the draft bill, they have included what's called a risk test. So they've included that, all of those things I've just mentioned, it has to meet the risk. And the risk is if it gives rise to any risk to a person's life, A or B, a risk of significant harm to a person's physical or mental health where the harm is reasonably foreseeable. And if there's any questions over that, it'll be decided on the balance of probabilities. So we would have concerns just about threshold and vagueness and how this will, how this will affect like I said, I started at the beginning when I mentioned that in Germany and how this is happening elsewhere. And we, sh while we're trying to fix something here, which I think is a good faith effort, especially, you know, children's rights groups, parents groups, you know, there are things that we have to discuss and there are things that we have to bring into the equation. The, the right to freedom of expression is a fundamental right. It's not unlimited, but um, it's, it's something that we need to be very mindful but, of. But, but Olga, can't you argue this? that you're talking about the worries of regulation from a legislative standpoint of these, particularly let's kind of focus on the social media giants because they intend to be the main element in this. Uh, you're worried about uh, regulation, but uh, surely they already regulate this area. The only difference is they do it entirely by themselves. They have their own notice and takedown procedures. They have their own rules about who they will block, what material they will take down and what material will be leave. So it is not uh, an unfettered area of the law uh, in the first place. It simply means that it is the private companies themselves that are making the decisions and that this act seeks, seeks, uh, just kind of seeks to impose uh, kind of more general regulation of the decisions that they're making. What do you say to that? I think that's a good point. We're, we're at the stage with the internet where governments are now trying to put pressure on media giants to take certain steps. But I suppose, you know, the UN Special Rapporteur uh, or freedom of expression, former, sorry, UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression, David Kay, has talked about this before and said that we need to be careful because this type of regulation is, we're actually kind of giving the social media giants even more power because by setting up these kind of regulations, will social media giants use more automated means to take stuff down? Will they overcompensate? Will they, you know, just to evade you know, some sort of a consequence. Those are things that we just we just need to be very careful of, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, a related area in relation to talk, you talk about concerns about freedom of expression is that the right 
also includes the right to receive information as well as to express it, which kind of brings me to the flip side of the coin in relation to the online safety bill and the kind of growing uh, problem about misinformation that is being spread online. There doesn't seem to be any provision in the bill as it's currently drafted that it will regulate misinformation. Do you think this is a problem? And are you concerned about the level of misinformation that is being spread online at the moment? Um, I think that to if, if we were to add misinformation and or disinformation to the OSMR bill now, it would just be too much. The bill is already trying to do enough, too, too much actually. Um, and, and, already, and if I could just also maybe speak a little to the, to, to the wider context as well. There are other pieces of legislation that are also trying to be passed at the moment. We have the Digital Services Act, which is going to be you know, covering similar terrain to the OSMR. We have hate speech legislation being um, going through the going through the parliament as well, or going through the Oireachtas as well. The thing about misinformation and disinformation is that, first of all, very difficult to define. You know, what's misinformation today may not be misinformation tomorrow. But having said that, yes, I think that, you know, there is a problem. You know, misinformation, disinformation, it's been around since as long as people have been talking. The problem today really is the amplification and the virality of that misinformation. And that really does go back to the social media giants. And then that goes back to how those algorithms and those recommender systems are being used. Like Francis Hagen, the Facebook whistleblower, has been adamant about this. We know this. There's a complaint against Facebook Ireland Limited by a group of Rohingya children living in a camp in Bangladesh because they basically are asking Facebook for a mere million dollars to provide funding for an education facilities in their camp based on what Facebook didn't do um, in terms of in terms of Myanmar. So when you consider when you consider misinformation, disinformation, we should be probably looking at what makes those spiral and amplified. That really goes back to the DSA because the DSA is where that should be nailed down. ICCL did put forward, uh, try to get an amendment on the DSA uh, there about a month ago, whereby recommender systems and algorithm systems would be turned off by default. These are systems that would have used personal data that they would be turned off by default. But unfortunately, you know, the powers that be in Europe seem to maintain this idea that... Just just to clarify, Olga, sorry, the Digital Services Act that you're talking about, that is an EU piece of legislation. That's not domestic legislation. That's an, actually an EU instrument. Is that correct? Absolutely, Michael. Thanks for, and thanks for making that clear. We would be of the view that the DSA should be passed first because we should be aligned with that. It's not really clear and it's kind of odd that we're trying to go it alone with this OSMR when the DSA is looking at similar ground. If I could just finish up uh, by coming back to where we started, Olga, which was the issue of data protection. Um, there was a recent report uh, from the Irish Council of Civil Liberties, which described Ireland as being Europe's Wild West when it comes to data protection. Now, the Data Protection Commission in this country, um, it, was, it was referred to in this report that it had published decisions on only four out of 164 cross-border cases that had been referred to it which is obviously a huge logjam in terms of these decisions. And that was over a three-year period. Um, how significant is this logjam in terms of decisions being published by the Data Protection Commission in Ireland? And do you want to venture as to who might be responsible for it? 
Thanks, Michael. Easy question. <laughs> um, so why ICCL's position, this this report from September is usually significant. And actually, it was this the kind of seed or the current the, the beginning of a series of events that culminated essentially in what was in the news where a complaint made by ICCL to the EU Ombudsman, Emily O'Reilly. Um, this report, yeah, it was done by again by my colleague um, Dr. Johnny Ryan and Alan Toner um, of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. But so the basis of the report was that, look, the creation of the GDPR was a result of the Snowden revelations, you know, and by passing it, European legislature created what is considered to be the gold standard of data protection around the world. But a law is only as strong as its enforcement. You know, there have been complaints about, you know, funding, lack of funding, or maybe, you know, lack of expertise. Who's to blame? Like, the data protection law needs to be enforced, and the Data Protection Commission is the enforcer. Okay, Olga, listen, uh, that's all very interesting. Thank you very much for that update um, on the law as it currently stands. Um, if I could go over now to Dr. Chris uh, Shrishak. Um, and hello, Chris. Um, I wanted to talk to you um, specifically about artificial intelligence. And kind of just as an introduction, maybe you might tell us how AI, how common it is these days in our everyday lives to an extent that we may not even be aware of its existence. Um, can you give us a quick overview of the area, what its most common applications are, and how you think artificial intelligence might develop in the future? Uh, so as you asked, how common is it? Um, I think it's much more common that a lot of people uh, think about it, partly because a lot of notion about artificial intelligence that the general public might have got is from science fiction movies, and often those are, let's say, extreme examples or in some cases, examples that don't exist. So some very straightforward examples would be, think of fingerprint recognition on your phones, for example. Those can rely on artificial intelligence systems. Just before me, Olga mentioned recommender systems, which, uh, about which there's an article in the Digital Services Act, in the EU regulation. Those are artificial intelligence systems as well. Then you can think of chatbots. If, you're, if you've interacted with chatbots on the internet, maybe as a helping tool on some websites, those are artificial intelligence systems as well. So these are, let's say, some very common examples, but there are plenty of places where you're using AI systems uh, and you're interacting with them in some cases as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, am I right in saying that these um, Alexa-type systems that a lot of people have in their living rooms as well, that's an, another example of AI, is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, in some ways, it's actually, I would call it a number of AI systems are involved there because what happens there is there is a system which first recognizes your voice and then there is a system which recognizes what you're saying. So these are usually combined, but then what's uh, gathered from here is then sent to the servers. And the servers often also run AI systems, often in the form of searching, right? Searching sometimes uses AI systems as well. So Google search in its background uses AI systems as well. So there are multiple AI systems actually involved in this chain. Can we talk about the regulation of this area? Uh, in terms of kind of the, the 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 legal landscape, I understand the Euro European Commission. Um, I think last year, or maybe even two years ago, published what it called a proposal for the regulation laying down harmonised rules on AI, which I, I think is very much a prelude to an actual 
EU-wide Artificial Intelligence Act being published. Um, can you explain what it proposes, um, this legislation, and how it might affect us specifically here in Ireland? Right. So the European Commission's proposal here, uh, which you're referring to, um, that is, in fact, shortened as AI Act. So this will be, let's say, the first main legislative framework uh, for AI systems from the European Union. And just for those who want, would not want to know what the process is, uh, so the European Commission proposes this AI Act and the European Parliament, as well as the European Council would then propose amendments and then there would be a trialogue and eventually what comes out of it would become the AI Act, the final version of the regulation. Uh, so at this point, we, the council as well as the parliament are in discussion. So they're doing their own work, proposing amendments, and these amendments would then be tabled. That means that what I would say, tell you now is based on the commission's uh, proposal. So it's not the final um, law itself. One thing it does is it, it uses a risk-based approach in order to decide what kind of AI systems first would be regulated. So that's an important aspect here to think about because this regulation will not regulate all AI systems. So it, it categorizes AI systems in terms of systems that should be prohibited from being used in, in the European market. And then there are systems which are considered high risk. And then there are systems which would, be a, which would require extra transparency. Uh, there will be extra transparency requirements. And then everything else is not really regulated at all. Furthermore, this particular regulation, most of it is actually only about the second category of high-risk AI systems. And for even for these, you might want to understand what is considered high-risk AI systems. So the way it's approached is that they consider AI systems which could have fundamental rights uh, issues, which would cause fundamental rights issues, as well as health and safety issues. So these are, let's say, the three main branches under which they consider something could uh, could be high risk or should be prohibited. And among these high risk, at least in the current draft, is um, AI systems used for migration control, for example. So that's one uh, in certain judicial processes. Although that's that's a very limited category there, they haven't uh, mentioned too much there. So these are two and. Another aspect I should add is all AI systems in safety critical uh, products, which are otherwise regulated from uh, through other product safety regulations are also captured here. So if a car, which is regulated through a different regulation for uh, safety of cars or passengers and cars, all of that, if they have AI systems, they would also need to comply with this particular regulation. Uh, does it does it deal at all, Chris, with um, just picking a very practical example of employment law? Because you read about kind of very large organisations sifting through masses of job applications and doing so using AI. Um, is there a, is there a relevance in that issue? Yes. So this is also considered a high risk application uh, by this uh, in the current draft, at least. So it's allowed. It would be allowed, but it would be treated as high risk. So another thing to think about is when it's considered high risk, what requirements do they have? So there are a bunch of uh, requirements that 
would need to be satisfied before as well as post-deployment of these systems. So that's another good thing, uh, at least a positive aspect here is a post-deployment uh, post monitoring is required. So those are there. So some examples of requirements would include things like um, data governance uh, for the AI systems that rely heavily on data, uh, transparency requirements, um, human oversight, for example, uh, some of these requirements. There is also uh, certain requirements for the cybersecurity aspects of AI systems, as well as robustness and accuracy. So, uh, so I mean, in, in all of these, uh, at least from the ICCL's perspective, uh, there are there are there is a lot that can be done. So, there are errors, for example, in this uh, proposal. Uh, there are mistakes uh, which all need to be corrected. Uh, for example, um, I'll probably ping on uh, uh, the GDPR aspect. So you, you you did discuss before this about GDPR enforcement and uh, about the complaint mechanisms uh, and all of that. This regulation has no such possibility. So if you and I are affected by AI systems, we don't have any legal standing to actually uh, complain. Uh, against producers of AI systems or anyone who's deploying AI systems. So that's that's just one example. Uh, yeah, so beyond that, there are other issues like uh, the scope. They make some technical errors there, uh, even regarding how, and, uh, how AI systems are developed or how data governance can be done. There are issues in those aspects as well. You mentioned there just kind of uh, the issue of human oversight about these AI systems. And that's just something I wanted to kind of touch on because I think most people imagine artificial intelligence, um, these systems to be created by humans and that the systems be fed data by humans. And therefore, there's always remains a large element of human sight, human oversight. But of course, machines can learn to develop how they use their own systems and they can uh, they can develop their own operations and they can operate autonomously themselves in certain areas and machines can even start to interact with each other to the entire exclusion uh, of human involvement is this an area of concern for you uh, it's certainly an area of concern so what the regulation is trying to do at this point is to require the producers to create mechanisms where human oversight can be performed. Uh, for example, having specific logging mechanisms or specific documentations, which add clarity to how human rights, uh, human oversight can be done. If I remember correctly, there is also a case where the person who is made responsible for the human uh, oversight should also be trained and should be sufficiently in the place to actually make sure what's happening. Uh, but most of the human oversight aspects in the regulation is with regards to decisions that come out of AI systems, especially. So, for example, uh, so you, you, you took the example of uh, resume screening, right? So in that example, for you might want to consider human oversight. One of the aspects would also be that if a decision comes out of an AI system, it'll still be a human being who would be responsible and who should have at least overseen how the, how the decision was made. But if you think of other examples, as you mentioned about um, the autonomous nature of certain AI systems, there it becomes much more challenging 
because uh, especially in the current regulation, there isn't sufficient teeth uh, for human oversight there. Is there a is there a time scale on the publication of this act, Chris? Do you, do you know kind of when it's anticipated? So a lot of the work in the parliament, for example, was delayed last year. So it's been pretty much like eight to nine months where very little happened, but things are kicking off. And the best we know is that uh, if things go in schedule on schedule this year, we might have a vote in November in the parliament about this. So we might have uh, this act then would be signed off probably pretty soon after that. It will become an act that uh, companies need to follow two years after that. So very similar to the GDPR, which was signed off in 2016, but eventually uh, it became in use in 2018. So this very similar process here. Yeah. So I, I just want to conclude in terms of domestic legislation. Is there any legislation as it currently stands that governs this area in Ireland? And is there going to be debt, uh, domestic legislation on the back of the publication of this act, do you think? So I don't necessarily know if there is a specific regulation for AI systems. However, if I understand correctly, there is uh, there are other bills in Ireland which refer to AI systems. Uh, for example, uh, use of uh, body cams, which could potentially have facial recognition systems. Facial recognition systems being one example of AI systems, right? So those examples are there. To your second question, uh, which is, would there be uh, new regulations in Ireland on the back of this regulation? Uh, so there are two things. First, in the EU, there are directives and regulations. So if it were a directive, then Ireland would have to then adopt the directive and make a law of its own. Uh, but because the AI Act is expected to be a regulation, it'll directly apply to Ireland. So there will not be a requirement for Ireland to make a new domestic legislation on the back of this one. This is obviously a, a very fast developing uh, area of law and is uh, uncharted territory to a large extent, I think, for a lot of people. So thank you very much um, to both Olga and Chris for giving us an overview of these two areas. And thank you all for listening. This podcast was produced by the Bar of Ireland for Justice Week 2022. For more information on Justice Week, follow us on Twitter at the Bar of Ireland. Thank you for listening.